Thank you for listening to another message from New Sound Church and our lead pastor, Josh Monty. For more information about us, you can check out our website at newsound.church, or you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We want to thank you for joining us today. We would love to hear how these messages are impacting your life. Share your story with us at story at newsound.church. Enjoy the message. So honored that you guys were here. And Angels We Have Heard on High is a Christmas carol written in England uh, around the end of the 1800s. And I love the song, but more importantly, I love the thought that these guys were out in this field and, and then these, this angel showed up. And then all of a sudden there's this choir of angels singing this thing. And there was significance about all of it that maybe we've missed in the cartoon version of the Christmas story that we've painted in our brains. In Luke chapter 1, we would find it in this way. It says, during Elizabeth's six month of pregnancy, and we're going to get there uh, next week, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin. She was engaged to marry a man named Joseph from the family of David. I, I think I would pause there and say, I need you to think about Joseph for a minute. I mean, this is a guy, you think you've had a bad day? Like, you think you've had a bad day? Like, you're talking about a guy, he went to bed, everything was cool. When he wakes up the next morning, his fiance comes in and says, hey, Joe, hope you had a great night's sleep. Love you, man. Um, hey, um, so, this, you're going to laugh. This is hilarious. You're going to laugh. Um, so last night, I was just um, about to go to sleep, and an adult male angel came. And, um, and that was cool. And, um, and as if that wasn't enough, um, he told me I was pregnant. He said, what now? He told me I was pregnant. Pregnant. Okay. All right, who is it? Whose is it? And she said, funny thing, you're going to love this part. It's God's. said, my mom said you were trouble. He's freaking out. Same way you would, same way I would. It's easy to paint caricatures of these men like he didn't go home that night and cry himself to sleep trying to figure out what was going to happen. In that world at that time, the angel said, greetings, the Lord has blessed you didn't feel like a blessing, and he's with you. Mary was startled by what the angel said and wondered what the greeting meant. And the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. God has shown you his grace. Listen, you're going to become pregnant and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. And he will be the great, and he'll be great, and he'll be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of King David, his ancestor. He will rule over the people of Jacob. So I need you to see that there's a lineage here of Jacob and of David. And his kingdom, what a promise, will never end. Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth 
in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. That's significant. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, who was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. I want to stop there and say what kind of a guy I think Joseph was. Now, there's another part in Scripture that we didn't mention here where an angel showed up and he said, Joseph, don't panic and don't leave this girl. She needs you. Because this child, she didn't make up some story. This is the child of God, and this is a significant part in history. But you know that he had to be going home panicking, wondering how all this was going to come together. And Joseph stayed. Joseph stuck it out. Because Joseph understood that there is a difference in covenant and contract. And so often we view church, and we view our personal relationships, and we view our marriage relationships, our business relationships like contracts, which says you do for me and then I'll do something back for you. But God is a covenant God. In fact, uh, your Bible says Old Testament and New Testament, but it would have been more formally called an old covenant or a new covenant. And when Jesus showed up, he entered into a covenant that wasn't based on how good you are or how many nice things you do, because if that was true, you would never qualify. He entered into a covenant that said, I'm just going to try to outserve you because that is the model of a healthy relationship that models the love of the Father. And so many of our relationships are not that way. We can go church to church to church. We can go family to family to family. We can go relationship to relationship. We can end friendships of 5, 10, 15 years in a day from a sentence, from one post, from one fight. Because we think that life is about contract and it's about a covenant. That means you're a hot mess and I'm a hot mess, but I will not quit you. I wonder how much different our life would look if we were covenant people instead of contract people. Joseph was a covenant man, not a contract man. Because the situation for him was very ugly. But he had made a commitment. I will not quit you. When Kim and I got engaged, a season that could and should have been the happiest season of our life became one of the toughest seasons of our life. In fact, for us, we had to wrestle to the ground. Was this a contract where if everything isn't shiny and beautiful and Instagram worthy, then we quit each other? Or is this a covenant where no matter what, I will not quit you? And I looked her in the eyes, and she looked at me in the eyes, and she said, I will never leave you. And I said, I will never leave you. And we entered into a covenant. The greatest catalyst, this isn't even part of the message. This is for, the greatest catalyst to growth in a marriage, to a relationship, to a friendship, to a church, is covenant, not contract. Contract will just say, I'll stay as long as it feels good. So I'll never have to try to make you any better than you. But covenant says... I'm going to die next to you, and so you leaving your wet towel on the floor is unacceptable. And we will fix this, or you will pay. 
But the reason that we let little things go for 30, 40 years and then we just we walk away from relationships when it starts to get a little tough is because we think of relationships like contracts and not covenants. And I'm begging you today, if you want healthy relationships in your church, you want healthy relationships in your home, you want healthy relationships at work, be a, contra- a covenant person, not a contract person. So now let's get to the shepherds. There were shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, because I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people today in the town of David. A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And they're going, oh my goodness. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's get to Bethlehem. It's amazing. And see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off. They found Mary and Joseph. I need you to see that they didn't search. I need you to see that the Bible didn't say that they spent the next two or three days knocking on doors trying to find them. I need you to see that there was something that that angel said. There was something in that instruction that gave them all the clues that they would need to go to the place they needed to go. When they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child and all who heard were amazed. And the shepherd said to them, but Mary treasured all these things and she pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So you got to understand something about first century uh, shepherds, something that was pretty remarkable. Now, you may not know this, but it was actually uh, a, 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 an occupation that was incredibly looked down upon at that point in the history of humanity. Now, it is true. That there was a lot of great men of God in the lineage and the history of Jesus himself that had been shepherds. Jacob was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. Uh, David was a shepherd. The prophet Amos was a shepherd. There were several people throughout the history of God's people that were shepherds. But by the time Jesus arrived on the scene, shepherds were looked down on. They, had, uh, they were ceremonially unclean because they had to walk around all of the time in things that sheep do. You know, and then they had to handle dead sheep, which would make them unclean. And they showed up in this moment, and this angel has spoken out to them, and and it's a it's an it's it's this it's this this moment where you realize that God is speaking to people that weren't thought very well of in that moment. Now you need to understand, there's a few Jewish texts uh, that can 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 kind of illuminate and help highlight for you what was happening culturally in that moment. You have the Talmud, which is the book of laws. You have the Mishnah, which is a collection of rabbinical statements about those laws. And you have what's called the Targum. The Targum is the same thing as the Mishnah, but was written in Babylon while they were in exile. And so you've got these works where you can go in and figure out what was going on culturally in that time. And I want you to find, I want you to see this text that I found from the Mishnah that explains the thought that people had about shepherds. A man, it says, should not teach his son to be a donkey driver, a camel driver, or a hairdresser. Because then you know hairdressers, they crazy. Or a sailor, 
it's good advice for people that live in a desert. <laughs> or a shepherd or a shopkeeper. For their craft is the craft of robbers. So they were incredibly looked down on. So it, it's a little puzzling that the angel would show up to a group of people that the world didn't think very highly of. But I need you to understand something. No one's opinion of you, including your own, matters as much as what God says about you. And I hope that somebody would get that in their heart today. So... It must be something about the instruction. So God shows up to these guys. They're tending these flocks. It's clear that they're in this area close to Bethlehem. They're in the Bethlehem area. And, 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 and this angel shows up and says, you're going to find this baby. Now, I need just to remember that when the Bible was written down, it was written down in Greek and Aramaic in the New Testament and Hebrew in the Old Testament. And because our language, the language that you and I speak, has, has only been around for about 300 years we had to jump from an ancient language into this one. Now, English in its versions has been around a little longer, but the English that you and I speak, late or modern English, has only been around for about 250, 300 years. And there, I think there are some moments where as you go back and you study the Greek and you look at the Hebrew, that there are just some decisions that the scholars made jumping from one language to the other, and it's not a limitation on the Bible, it's a limitation on the English language. That they're just some decisions that they made. That I, I, and, and in this particular instance, I want you to see that the angel said something in this Greek that is different than what shows up in your Bible. I want to show you here in the Greek. Uh, there's three Greek words, and I'm going to give them to you now. Um, that in this moment, if you look in the actual Greek manuscript, there is a word that is missing in your English Bible that makes their sentence imperative. Meaning uh, specific. Meaning that they didn't say you'll find the babe lying in a manger. They said you'll find the baby lying in the manger. So angels show up to shepherds in a field, this despised group that culturally were looked down upon. But they told them that you're going to find this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in the manger. Now I also want to make a statement that it wasn't out of the ordinary for Mary to have her baby outside of the home. Sometimes we paint a picture of poor Mary being kicked out. There was no room in the Motel 6, and she was on her own trying to figure everything out. And first off, there were no hotels in that community. And the second thing is that it would have been very uncommon for a woman to have a baby in her own home. Because the bleeding caused by birth would have made her ceremonially unclean. It was very common for them to kick the woman out of the house to go have the baby somewhere else. Otherwise, their house, entire house, would have been defiled, and they would have gone had to go through a ceremonially uh, a ceremonial ritual to cleanse the house so the fact that she wasn't in her home doesn't scare me too much and, and it doesn't make me feel too incredibly sorry for her in that moment because it was customary of that time but I do believe that she went to go have a baby and I don't believe that it was in a little barn in fact there was something about what those angels said that pointed us to a specific place there in that specific town now I want to give you a timeline to kind of help you understand that God has been working all of this together since the beginning of humanity. Today, in 2018, we're looking at this through our context, in our eyes, through the ways that we see things. Now we get this song, Angels We Have Heard on High, in the year 1862. And we get this moment of majesty, and I think in the moment, while the song is beautiful, 
we forget that these were real people in a real time dealing with information that you maybe don't have today. Last week I told you that there was a moment in 530 AD where a man named Dionysius, 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 uh, so Dionysius in 530 AD created the calendar. He created the concept of Anno Domini or AD or the year of our Lord. And he picked the year that he thought that Jesus was born in. The problem was my good man uh, Dionysius got it wrong by a few years. And more than likely the savior of the world was not born here because zero didn't exist in the Greek uh, numerical system. More than likely he was born around 6 B.C. And at this point is where the shepherds have sp- are, are sitting in the presence of these angels hearing this thing that was spoken of. Now, what those angels were saying, you may not understand, that they were quoting a guy that actually lived about 800 years earlier in 752, a prophet by the name of Micah. And in 752 B.C., he wrote down some words in the fifth chapter in the second verse that would help us to understand that the Savior, who was going to be born out of the house of David, who lived at around 1,050 B.C., that a Savior that was going to come out of this house would reign, he said, over the house of Jacob forever. And in 1732, Jacob would lose his wife, Rachel. Now, why is all that significant? Look in Micah 5, chapter 2, and he says it in this way. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over all of Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And we know that verse. In fact, we might have seen that verse before, and I I spoke about it last week. But if you go back in Micah just a little bit more, he gives you something incredibly powerful That helps to begin to understand a little bit of the power and the significance of this moment. In Micah 4.8, there's a term that shows up that you have probably never heard of before. In the Hebrew language, Adair meant flock and Migdal meant tower. Go to Micah 4.8. As for you, watch tower... Of the flock, Madal Adair, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. So you're going, ah, man, Josh, you're messing my brain up because you just told me that the Savior was going to come to Bethlehem. And then this verse just says that the Savior is going to come to this place called Migdal Adair, the watchtower of the flock. Some of your English Bibles actually say Migdal. And some of your English Bibles just say watchtower of the flock. It depends on some decisions that the translators made. But in the Hebrew, if you looked in your Bible in the Hebrew, it would say Migdal Adair. And so you're going, why? I mean, how, how does that even work? So these shepherds are these despised people, and, and now they're out watching their field. And then you send the despised people, the unclean person, to go meet with Jesus. I mean, it's just not all making sense. And then now you're talking about two different places. What you would need to understand is just on the north outskirts of the town of Bethlehem was a place called Migdal Adair. It was the place called the Tower of the Flock. And in the Tower of the Flock, 
worked a group of shepherds. These shepherds were not ordinary shepherds. These shepherds were Levitical shepherds whose job it was to raise sheep for one purpose and one purpose only. The sacrifice necessary every morning and every night in the temple. And yet this prophecy said out of this place would come this Messiah. In fact, at that point in ancient Jewish history, it was forbidden via the Mishnah to let your sheep graze randomly in that society. It says it right here. It forbids the keeping of flocks throughout the land of Israel except in the wilderness. The only flocks otherwise kept, look at this, would be for those for the temple services. So the, the, the fact that these shepherds were out in this field, it would have been illegal for them to do so unless these sheep and these shepherds were a special breed of sheep and a special breed of shepherd that were doing one specific job. And it says here in the Mishnah, an animal that was found between Jerusalem, and look at this word, Migdal Adair, right here. That this animal, or a similar distance in any direction, the males are considered for burnt offerings, and the females are considered for peace offerings, says Rabbi Yehuda. So, no animals are allowed to graze, except for animals being raised specifically for temple sacrifice. The fact that they were in Bethlehem was the same place that a guy a thousand years earlier by the name of David would have tended his flocks in the same field. It was the same place 1,800 years earlier that a guy named Jacob would have also been tending his flocks in the same field, in the same place at Magdal Adair. And the amazing thing about it was when a baby lamb was born, it had to be male and it had to be spotless and it had to be without blemish. These Levitical priests would take that shepherd, and you this will blow your mind, they would take that sheep, they would wrap that sheep in swaddling bands and lie that sheep in a manger. And the place where they would lie that sheep was the tower of the flock, Migdal Adair. So when an angel came up in the middle of the night out of nowhere and said, you're going to find the baby. And this will help make perfect sense to you boys. He's going to be wrapped in swaddling cloths and he'll be lying in the manger. They knew exactly where to go. Now, why does this matter for us outside of being a cool little piece of trivia? Because I need you to understand how God works. In Genesis 28, he's speaking to Jacob, the patriarch. He says, I am the Lord the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west, the east, the north, and the south. And listen to this. I need you to understand that this is a blessing that you're in today. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and I will watch over you Check this out. This is a covenant. This is not a contract. You spent most of your life lying. You spent most of your life being selfish. You spent most of your life focused just on you. 
He said, but I'm going to enter into a covenant with you because I want people to say, oh my goodness, how great is Jacob. No, I want people to say, oh my goodness, how great is his God. And so he said, I'm going I'm to enter into this covenant with you and I am with you and I will watch over you, over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. And look at this, I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. And that promise wasn't just a promise for Jacob. It was a promise that is available for you today. So Jacob gets this news. And then in the next verse, it's time to pack up. And then they moved on from Bethel, which means house of God. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel, the love of his life, began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, don't despair, for you're having another son. If you remember, Rachel's first son was a guy by the name of Joseph, who would end up saving God's people by being able to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Benoni. But his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar. And to this day, that pillar still marks Rachel's tomb. You can go to it today. It's right outside of a city called Bethlehem. Israel moved on again. And look at this. He pitched his tent beyond the tower of the flock. 1,800 years earlier, God makes this promise. And he says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I got your back. And then his wife passes away. And I know in that moment when he looked down and he had this son, Benoni, he had to be thinking to himself, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he made a decision in that moment to trust the promise of God over the moment of his pain. And he said, I will not call him Benoni, I will call him Benjamin. Benoni means son of sorrow. Benjamin means right hand of God. And the place that was the symbol of Jacob's greatest pain became the same place with Gal Adair, of the fulfillment of the greatest promise. And I need you to understand something today. God will never waste a hurt. He hates what happened to you. He hates the pain that you have gone through. But when you quit hiding that thing and hand it over to him, he can use it to change people's lives and redeem their story and yours. But to get there, we have to do a few things. Number one, I have to be honest about my pain. I have to be honest about my pain. I think that Jacob 
I had to understand, like, this is a bad moment, but I am going to stay faithful because I do believe that out of my lineage will come somebody that will do great things. And I do believe that out of my faithfulness will come somebody that will do great things. And I do believe that out of my lineage, somebody will come that'll do great things. And God, I don't understand how everything's going to work out, but I've got to be honest about the fact that you gave me a promise. And so I'm going to hold on to you and the promise over the pain. When Jesus shows up, pain can become potential. And I need you to understand it. So, and I want you to hear it in this way. Yeah, so you, the first five years of your marriage were hell on earth. You fought like crazy. You didn't get along with each other. You said things that we, you wish you could take back. But God is good and he is faithful and you push through. And now that you are here and you push through, we can either pretend like that season never happened. Or we can take that pain and come alongside young couples. And we can make sure they never go through what we went through. We can pretend like you weren't all buck wild when you were a teenager and when you were in your 20s. And gam gam, I know you got such sweet white hair now and you make the best apple pie in the history of the world. But we know you were buck wild when you were a teenager. We know. And we can either pretend that that season never happened and look down on this generation that's coming up like I wish you did it the way we did it. The problem is they are doing it the way we did it. Because all we've learned how to do is get 50, 60, 70 years old and pretend like we didn't live that way. So I'm begging you, why don't you come alongside a, a, a 15 year old, a 20 year old and pull alongside and say, you don't have to make the same decisions that I made. We can pretend like it never happened or we can say, I will take the moment of my greatest pain and I will, I will hold on to it like God's greatest promise. Listen. I came from a home that with all kinds of junk. My parents split up when I was a kid. I carried that pain around every day of my life. But there, I could continue to pretend like that never happened and that didn't mark me. Or I could continue to build a church where people who are struggling in their relationship can come and make the decision that we will fight for this. We are a covenant people and we will never give up. And every time a family comes back together, every time a marriage gets healed that was falling apart, every time a son comes home that had left poorly, every time that happens, God is redeeming a piece of my story. See, the devil tried to knock me out when I was a kid and get me to quit. But I had to hold on to the promise that God had made that I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I have plans for your life and my plans for you are good. And I didn't know how everything was going to work out, but I made the decision that I have to stay faithful in the field that I've been given. I have to stay faithful. I just got to stay faithful. I wonder what would have happened if the angel showed up and that particular night the shepherd didn't go to work. That morning after morning and night after night, these guys got up tending their flocks. And don't you have to wonder sometimes that they thought, God, we're looked down on by so many people. I could have done something with my life. And now I'm out here tending these sheep. And every time I get to like one, they take it into town and kill it. But they were faithful. They planted. I'm just going to stay faithful in the field. You're going to stay in the church. I, I think sometimes like, we're worried about breakthrough and all that. Like, but like faithfulness in the church now means I'll go to one for a few months. And then I'll let the world distract me. And then I'll just go do something else. And, and we bounce around from church to church like, like, we're, like, we're, like we're shopping at JCPenney. And... 
and I, look, I, like, I don't need everybody in the world to come to this church, Lord help. But I do, I do need, like, everybody to find a church and just plant. And just plant. Just stay faithful in the field. Hey, don't give up on that marriage. Just stay. You're going to stay in the field where you've been called. This is a covenant. It is not a contract. It's not I do for you and then you do for me. What kind of relationship is that? That means we're just starting the clock when we start every relationship for the moment that we get to quit it. If you end a relationship because of something somebody wasn't doing for you, you didn't end a relationship, you fired a servant. But this covenant relationship of God, you made a promise and I'm going to hold to the promise even when I don't see the outcome. You know what faith is? Steps minus knowing how it's all going to work out equals faith. And so God, I don't know how it's going to go, so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to trust God with the outcomes. I'm going to trust God with the outcomes. He got up that morning and he said, we will not call him son of sorrow. We will call him the right hand of God. David said, I know the giant's bigger than me, but that's why I brought five rocks, in case he needs another one. I know Joseph got up that morning and thought, my God, what have I done? But I'm going to trust God with the outcomes. You know, some of our problem as we walk this, faith, this thing called faith out is we've confused outcomes and output output is my responsibility output is your responsibility i'm going to give you everything i got i'm going to hustle i'm going to god you're getting my full effort you're getting my full devotion no partial steps no lukewarm attitudes no half measures god you're going to get everything i've got because you gave me everything you had and then however it works out i believe that you are working on a plan that is bigger than me We have shifted the gospel in America to be something so incredibly different than what actually shows up in our Bible. We say statements like this. If you'd been the only person in the entire world, Jesus would have died just for you. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. We'll say stuff like this. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And that joy was you. It doesn't say that either. In fact, you may tell you what the joy set before Jesus was? Hearing his father say, well done, good and faithful servant. In fact, I could say it to you like this. Jesus didn't die to save you from your sins. <gasps> Man, go get your purse. He's talking heresy. No, listen to me. Jesus' death saved you from your sins. But he didn't die because you were the center of the universe. He died because his father told him to. In fact, he said, God, I wish something else would happen, but nevertheless, thy will be done. Take this cup from me. But I'm not the center of the universe, God, you are. And we shift the, we've shifted in the American gospel to take Jesus out of the center and plant ourselves firmly in the place that only he was supposed to reign. So God, I don't control outcomes. God's job is the harvest. Your job is don't quit. 
I imagine anybody at any point in the life of this story had a million and a half reasons to quit. Jacob had lost the love of his life. His son had been sold off into slavery. He presumed him for dead. His sons would do all kinds of heinous things to him and to each other. He had spent most of his life lying and cheating other people, and so he spent the most of the later part of his life looking over his shoulder, wondering who was coming for him next. David was a middle school boy when he had to face the largest man in the known world. He had a boss that tried to kill him, not once but several times. Micah had to trust God when the whole world around him was burning. And Joseph had to look at a scared young girl, probably not much older than 14 or 15, and say, in our family, we don't quit people. My name's Joseph, and I'm of the house of David. We're a covenant people, not a contract. My people don't quit people. And even though I don't understand how God is going to work all of this out, I won't quit you. And you're here today because of the faithfulness of covenant men and God's faithfulness to work a bunch of broken and a bunch of ordinary people together to do something extraordinary. He showed up in the field that day and spoke to those shepherds because he knew that night they would need to go do the one assignment that they had been given on this earth. And that was to certify the spotless nature of a lamb for sacrifice. Thank you for listening. We would love to have you join us at New Sound for one of our weekend experiences. Check out our website for times and directions at newsound.church. We would love to hear how these messages are impacting your life. Please share your story with us at story at newsound.church.